When you think of Westerns as a genre of literature, film, TV, or other media, and list off the familiar characters, plot lines, and tropes, you probably don't include time travel, zombies, vampires, or aliens. That is precisely what a growing field of authors, filmmakers, and other artists are doing, blending multiple genres with Westerns, setting Westerns in unrealistic circumstances, or importing unrealistic circumstances into Western settings. Welcome to Writing Western. I'm your host, Brendan Ritz, and this month we speak with literary scholar Michael K. Johnson about his 2023 University of Nebraska book, Speculative Wests, Popular Representations of a Region and Genre. While it is fun and games, Johnson's work suggests that it can provide us, as people interested in thinking critically about the West, with so much more than simple entertainment. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Michael K. Johnson is Professor of American Literature at the University of Maine at Farmington. His primary research areas are African-American literature and the literature and culture of the American West. He's the author of multiple books, including Black Masculinity and the Frontier Myth in American Literature, Hoodoo Cowboys and Bronze Buckaroos, Conceptions of the African-American West, Can't Stand Still, Taylor Greene and the Harlem Renaissance, and A Black Woman's West, The Life of Rose B. Gordon. In this episode, we discuss his most recent book, Speculative Wests, Popular Representations of a Region and Genre, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2023 in their Post-Western Horizons series. In this book, Johnson demonstrates the durability and flexibility of the Western as a genre, as he explores works that integrate it with science fiction, fantasy, horror, and other genres. Johnson focuses on what he calls speculative Westerns that feature non-realistic components in ways that are somewhat unique from the broader world of so-called weird or hybrid Westerns, of which there are many. These include time travel narratives, alternate timelines, zombie outbreaks set in history and in the future, vampires, mythological creatures, and more. In all, he points us to ways in which looking at the region from the most unrealistic perspectives 
might actually be able to provide opportunities to see the region more clearly. They force us to ask new and unexpected questions, and these new ways of thinking can be powerful. The books, films, and other cultural works he analyzes also sound like a lot of fun. So get your pen and paper ready to jot down titles, authors, and filmmakers. This work should add a lot of reading and viewing to our cues. Michael K. Johnson, welcome to Writing Westward. Oh, thank you. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I'm excited to dip back into uh, a little bit out of history, which is what I often fall in with these episodes and into some literature, which uh, we've done a few other times on the on the podcast as well. Um, this will bring, uh, and, and not just some literature, but some very strange and weird literature. <laughs> I love it. Can you tell us about kind of your personal history about uh, with uh, Westerns as a genre, be it film or literature or other forms of media? So um, I guess I grew up in not the golden age of movie Westerns, but the golden age of television Westerns. So I, I have had, it's sort of part of my childhood is watching Westerns like Gunsmoke, right? Or the High Chaparral was one of my favorites that I, that I recall as a child. Um, so, so there's been like a, Westerns are very familiar to me, right? Because the, um, when I was growing up, that was like the dominant uh, type of program that was on television. So I, I did see a lot of them. I did not necessarily continue to watch Westerns, you know, for, you know, as I grew older. Um, I kind of came back to it later um, when I became interested in, in the West more generally. Um, and did you grow up in the West? Nope, I grew up in Tennessee. Okay, so you were a, a Tennessean kid, uh, kind of viewing the West from the outside through, through t TV. And, and, you know, and, and like the Daniel Boone show, in which uh -huh. the Kentucky and Tennessee was the West <laughs> at that point, yeah, at yeah. least in that setting, right? Or the Davy, uh, Davy Crockett, Crockett, yeah, King of the yeah. Wild Frontier, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all those things. Uh, so then, how does this then start leading you um, in your scholarly work? Uh, What's your your kind of scholarly trajectory of then thinking critically about uh, the Western genre? Well, I, I went to graduate school um, at the University of Kansas, um, and so I mean, I, so at least I was like across on the other side of the Mississippi, <laughs> and sort of got to get, sort of get into the Western history of those of, of that area. Um, but I think most importantly, there were several professors who were involved with the Western American Literature Association and went to those conferences regularly. So I ended up going to a couple of um, the WLA conferences. Um, uh, near the end of my graduate school career, and I think that helped sort of shape my interest in things about the West. Right. Um, my dissertation was on the idea of new frontiers because I was kind of interested in that idea in the 1960s from John F. Kennedy of the new frontier, and I was curious how that how, how that sort of got articulated in, in literature, uh, how that idea got articulated in literature, and so I was doing these sort of investigations of very abstract concepts of what the frontier might be. And I ended up working on a Norman Mailer essay uh, called The White Negro. 
um, which was a very sort of weird version of the new frontier in that he proposed that the, the new frontier was actually the, the, the frontier of, of American nightlife in the jazz club. And the frontiersman was the hipster uh, who was going to these jazz clubs and experiencing these, these new experiences. Um, it replicated all the worst parts of frontier mythology, right? It, or, or many, except for the violence, I guess. Uh, but the the sort of the, the sense of the other that's out there that the white explorer learns and is changed and transforms by. But in Mailer's case, it was not Native Americans as it was in more traditional frontier mythology, uh, but it was African Americans, uh, particularly um, jazz performers or uh, people who go to the jazz clubs. And that, you know, it was obviously a problematic configuration, but it was pretty interesting. And my next sort of thought was, okay, so if Mailer is writing about this, what, how are African-Americans responding to the idea of the new frontier? And, and that led me to some things where I'm looking in these 1960s writers who are reimagined frontiers, not in the United States, but in other places. So Africa and Europe become these places that are presented as if they were frontiers or using conventions of the frontiers. And, and then, and this is sort of a long answer, but the next logical step for me was, okay, if that's the new frontier for African-Americans, what was the old frontier uh, for African-Americans, right? What was the West like for African-Americans? And that led me backwards to a more sort of regional approach to thinking about the frontier in the West and to writers like, uh, like Oscar Michaud, uh, who was also a Black filmmaker who both wrote about his experiences as a homesteader in South Dakota, um, as well as uh, made a couple of films about it. And that's sort of where the, the trajectory of my interest in the West comes from, in particular, the trajectory that led me to think about, okay, how is the West imagined from the African-American's perspective? How is it imagined from perspectives other than white perspectives? So you have this long history of approaching the West from unconventional angles or uh, underexplored angles or, um, I mean, as we're going to see today, maybe like weird uh, angles? Yeah, I, I think that is, uh, that's probably the through line, right? <laughs> um, I, 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 I have a tendency, I, I'm fond of the abstract. I, I'm, I'm fond of the way that that's something that is concrete is really reimagined as something different. So, so science fiction imaginations of the West are very attractive to me, for example. Um, but I also am aware of that that tendency. I try to to balance myself with these more abstract understanding of the frontier, but also being sure that I'm also attentive to concrete representations of particular places. And that that is sort of the I think that's the way it was with my uh, first book, uh, uh, Black Masculinity and the Frontier Myth. But I think it's also the way it is in, in speculative West, in which I'm interested in genre, right? The genre Western, which is not always, or maybe even mostly connected to the actual West, right? But I'm trying to find a way in which I can sort of move back and forth between those two ways of uh, thinking about the West as a specific place and region, uh, but also as a more abstract idea as it's been, particularly as it's been articulated through genre. Hmm. Well, let's maybe talk about genre then and um, first, maybe some of the genres that you're not talking about, but that uh, that, that are adjacent to what you're talking about, and 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 some overlap. Um, what are um, weird westerns and hybrid westerns? Because these are not specifically what you're talking about, but but they're in the world that you're operating in. 
right? And and, and I, I sort of make distinctions here that I think are kind of fluid and it may be a little arbitrary because yeah. um, all these terms, I think, could be used interchangeably and have been interchange used interchangeably. I, I tend to think of weird Westerns as Westerns that have a supernatural element to them. So Westerns with ghosts, Westerns with zombies, uh, Westerns with vampires, mm-hmm. right? Those to me are what I sort of think of as weird Westerns. Um, a hybrid Western would be any sort of Western form that's associated with another genre. So uh, Western romance would be a hybrid Western form, but not necessarily a weird Western, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then speculative Westerns, I use that term. Is this your, your term, speculative Westerns? I think so. <laughs> I think it's my coinage, uh-huh. uh, but, the, but there are so many coinages out there. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to lay exact claim to, to the invention of this. Uh, it's, it's the term that I sort of settled on, right, as uh, um, a way of sort of being distinct from weird westerns, um, because I, I feel like it opens up the space for more possible conversations about different types of texts. So uh, if I think of even a weird western or a science fiction western as a term, I think I'm looking at something that specifically is engaged with another popular genre. Uh, the speculative Westerns um, may or may not be necessarily genre works in that sense, right? That they're set in the West, but they have some speculative element to them. Um, so um, I'm trying to think of... I mean, the other phrase you use is um, they all have unrealistic um, components as kind of like major parts of their plot or narrative. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that that we would not accept in ordinary normal reality the way we accept it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so if there are ghosts, we probably would not accept that as a straightforward realist novel, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that is interesting and um, is that some of the elements of these speculative westerns, um, which are often, I mean, you, you've made a career out of thinking about race in the West, you know. Uh, but a lot of these, like um, the racial components in these uh, kind of alternate timelines, like you right. know, or, or counterfactual West, like what if there had been a zombie outbreak in the Civil War? And, right. <laughs> um, but um, but so a lot of them often have these racial um, tones to them. Uh, but what's interesting is that, uh, and so they often present a West that is much more diverse racially um, and much more complex. But in some ways, that actually might be closer to the history than what genre westerns have generally and so on, on the one hand these are very unrealistic speculative westerns but in some ways they are uh presenting some things that are more historical than what you know john ford movies gave us yeah that's certainly true right the, the, I, and, and i think that is part of what's interesting about these these group of um works that i'm looking at about the west um they're using these um, it is kind of weird to think about they're using these speculative genres as a way of maybe giving us a more realistic vision of the West that is a West that is very diverse. Um, I, I guess what they also do is that they sort of relieve the like the African-American character of the burden of being the African-American character, right, as being the representative of the race, as being the representative who is there to sort of... Um, experience racism right or through which the you know the the racism of the culture can be revealed through the experiences of this character um because they're in a we're in different timelines we're in a more imaginative worlds 
those characters don't necessarily have to deal with all those problems. They're, they're more free to be the heroes without having to um, be the character whose responsibility is to represent the race um, as it's been um, experienced through, or to represent races has been experienced through history. So it allows these writers or or filmmakers, creators, whatever we're gonna. I, I really don't like the word creators because that has some new weird like uh, content creation yeah uh, vibes that I'm not big on. But um, but th this allows the people making these products to maybe sidestep some tropes and just not have to engage with them, which then opens up possibilities for them to do all kinds of other things. Is that your yeah, argument? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, again, I, I think it's a, it's an opportunity. I mean, what's what's sort of engaging about the Western is its mythic qualities, right? That there's a real sense of myth and heroism in, in Westerns, and it allows uh, creators of color to engage with the myth and the history part of of the genre, and to present us with uh, with heroes who are doing uh, spectacular things. Um, you know, I I. In my earlier book, um, Hoodoo Cowboys and Bronze Buckaroos, I was looking at specifically African-American representations of the West. And that was mostly through realist works. Um, and, and, and just the opportunity for a writer to engage in a world where a lot of the issues that those writers in the realist works are having to, to present or find ways of moving around through, um, I think it, it ends up being freeing um, to let those writers create heroes. Um, I have I have watched a lot of films with African-American characters, a lot of Westerns with African-American characters. You rarely see an African-American woman in the role of the cowboy hero. You rarely see an African-American woman, even with a gun. Um, but books like uh, the Justina Ireland series, Deathless Divide, um, and Dread Nation, that's the central character, right? Um, not just a gun, but a, a sword and knife. <laughs> She's fighting off zombies. And if, if that if that character had been set in a normal Western, it would have been um, it, it it would have jumped off the page in a different way that the yeah, other the writer would have had to engage with in all kinds of ways, explaining well why is this right. unconventional character able to do all these things, um, but by setting it in this this other uh, you know unrealistic count. Uh, alternate timeline setting, they can just go forward with their story. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Uh, you can set aside some of the issues. Um, I mean, the issues of race are still there. One of the interesting things about Deathless Divide is because it takes place after the Civil War, or actually the Civil War is disrupted by the zombies, right? <laughs> yeah, so this is, I think I mentioned this briefly before, like, yeah, in the middle of the Gettysburg yeah. battle, there's a zombie outbreak. And so the Civil War ends and we now have a zombie apocalypse in the 1860s. Yeah, so so the uh, the, the uh, battlefield filled with the dead becomes a battlefield filled with the undead. Right? Um, and because of this, there's a compromise which which officially abolishes slavery. But as the book sort of carefully points out all the way through, slavery may have been officially abolished, but is in effect still right. The the characters are still having to. Um, to uh, to find their way around restrictions, right? I, I guess the difference is that they can still be heroes and do that, right? That, that's that's not the story, right? The, mm -hmm. the the restrictions they face is not the story. Um, the story is the sort of heroic behavior of those characters. This one's uh, this yeah, Dread Nation and what's the set, the other book in the series? Um, um, Deathless Divide. Yeah, uh, does another these books seem to do another interesting thing that you talk about throughout of these authors. 
um, playing inside and outside of the genre, um, playing with actual history and kind of new counterfactual histories. Um, I, I was struck by, so part of this compromise is that um, African-American and Native American children um, in this zombie apocalypse world are forcefully taken from their homes and put into schools, um, which has some resonance, right, with you know Native boarding school experiences, right? Um, and I was like, oh, there's actually, they're, they're playing with actual kind of historical ideas and concepts, but it's twisted. And in these schools they go to are to become like zombie killers, right? They're right. trained or, to or kill to zombies. Be, yeah, to kill zombies. And and I think the, the women in particular are there supposed to be um, training to be attendants for uh, for wealthy white women, right? As sort of bodyguards. But not just domestic servant. Again, so here's again, right. a, a kind of a historical idea but they're not just domestic servant, they're uh, anti-zombie bodyguard. Indeed, right. And the but main they character like wielding take... a scythe, right? That's like her mm. main weapon. <laughs> but they also have to take etiquette lessons. <laughs> okay. Just they are with ladies, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, because any good zombie killer needs to have good etiquette. Yeah, yeah. Or as time. one of the characters in um, Deathless Divide points out, or Dread Nation, I guess Deathless Divide is that, you know that she's very very clear on on being very fashionable and if, if the day comes when um she can't be fashionable and kill zombies then she's finished <laughs> mm. so so she wears all sorts of clothing that her her friend describes as impractical for zombie fighting uh you talk about how this set of books and um this is and this is i think in the last chapter in your book um about kind of afrofuturism and um but then playing with slave narratives as a genre and playing with westerns as a genre um one of the other texts that you bring up in this chapter is a uh, brother from another planet yes uh, a text uh, it's a film um yes. but explain to us how this kind of plays with this trope of kind of like you know, the, the stranger arriving in town if we see yeah. in shane and some other really famous westerns so can you can you lay this one out as an example of of these speculative westerns kind of playing with the genre while upending it and kind of reinventing it deconstructing it all at the same time yeah so so brother from another planet i think is kind of fun in part because it gives me an opportunity to to, to go with a text where I, I don't think it would ever be classified generally as a western right it, it doesn't at first glance seem like a western um, this is one of the the out, one of the texts that's sort of at the edge of of what I would consider a speculative western because it doesn't um, take place in the West, but the, it takes but place the, in Harlem. <laughs> but the, but the, the stories, the narrative structure is is a western. Right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, it, for the 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 brother from outer space who is just the brother, he doesn't have a name. Uh, he arrives via a crashing spaceship, uh, lands in New York Harbor. Um, and for him, he arrives at the frontier, right? Everything that he encounters is new. So in terms of the structure of the story, this is a frontier encounter. He meets people that are indigenous to this place that he has never encountered before. Uh, he slowly sort of becomes part of the community there. Um, so, so there's that element of, of a frontier space, right? Uh, that, that he is exploring for the first time. There are others who he comes in contact with that he has never met before and has to negotiate these relationships with these others. And as you said, he's also the, the classic stranger uh, who arrives in town and then things change. Um, 
he slowly becomes involved in the community because he is alien. He has powers that uh, others do not have, and he becomes a kind of protector for the community. Uh, particularly, there's a, uh, he discovers sort of this drug trade that is going on that people are dying from, and at one point he um, he kills the person who is at the center of the drug trade, right? The some guy in a high rise who is far away from the trouble he's causing. So there's a you know there, there's a kind of showdown there between him and the drug lord or the, the drug whatever he would be called. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that is sort of within the structure of, of the Western. There are also these sort of like uh, other Western conventions. There's a bar slash saloon that is the primary gathering place in, in the episode or in, in, the, in the movie. Um, there are... Um, there, is there, there is there are, a honky tonk player piano in the corner? Yeah, well, there's no there's yeah. a there's a um, there's a video game, right? Okay. So the there's a guy who plays he's always playing the video game, and um, particularly there the the brothers being chased by two men in black, right? Who are um, both science fiction and western because they're also identified as bounty hunters, right? Who are after him. Uh, he's at the, he's sort of in, I think he's in the back room at the bar or something, or he may have left, and the bounty hunters come in, and when they walk in the door, suddenly the video game music stops, right? It's been sort of a constant backdrop for for every scene that's in that, uh, in that, uh, that bar, and then the very strange men in black come in, and they, uh, they pull some lines of dialogue that are familiar from Westerns. Um, when they're asked for badges, it's like we we, yeah. we don't have any badges. We don't need no badges, right? Um, which is and kind of like the record scratch of the music stopping. Like that's in every single Western saloon scene when the bad yeah. guy or the bounty hunter or or sometimes the stranger shows up, right? And everyone freezes and looks at the, at the swinging saloon doors. Yeah. Right, exactly. And actually, the doors in the rest and doors in the the bar, they don't they're not the bat wing door, but they do swing. <laughs> They're complete doors. They're all from up from top to bottom, but they do swing open back and forth. I mean, um, one thing that a lot, and I'm not familiar with uh, most of the books and films and things that you're writing about here. I, I I'm not familiar with so, but um, but they resonated with a lot of with so many other things, and just reminded me of how um, you know how flexible the Western genre is. You know, over the last few years, I've been boring my kids by trying to explain to them. You know, as we've been watching The Mandalorian, right? Which is not just—I mean, there's been lots of space westerns, but they—they they don't even try to hide the fact that they're leaning into the space western. I mean, the music, even my my daughter, she's like, oh, that's like she she's like, oh, that sounds like uh, you know, like the OK Corral like scene or whatever the the Mandalorian's like little theme is. Anyways, uh, and just plot point after plot point, I'm like, oh, that's you know, playing with this western trope or that one. Um, but it's just such a flexible genre. We've we've seen it out in space. Um, we, we see it in a uh, an alien uh, visiting Harlem, like you know, the right, genre right. genre tropes are being ported all over the place. Yeah, and I, I I try to for the most part the text that I talk about I I try to choose ones in which that seems to be intentional that they are drawing or like as with the Mandalorian right you can't miss that it's a western right so so. I'm looking for texts that really are drawing our attention to the fact that they are also Westerns as well as whatever else they may be, or that they are also very much, very specifically about the West in some way or another. 
um, I, that's, that's sort of the, in, in my, my attempt to sort of, you know, keep from going to the point where it's like, well, everything's a Western, right? Everything's about the West. Um, that, that sort of sense of intentionality that I get from Texas, from Texas, part of the way I, I try to ground my approach. Let's talk about some of these other um, kind of wrinkles or uh, conventions, plot points, uh, plot devices that uh, you look at in some of your other chapters. Um, let's talk about time travel. Sure. Uh, you, you talk about uh, some of these texts that time traveled back into the 19th century. Um, what is that allowing uh, these creators to do uh, in investigating the actual the actual historic West and uh, then, but also kind of deconstructing it and playing in that sandbox in creative ways. Yeah, well, it, it sort of picks up on I think what is is maybe typical of, of time travel narratives um, is this kind of paradox about the way that we think about the past. Um, on the one hand, time travel narratives show that you can't change the past, <laughs> right? No matter how hard you try, right? Something will happen to prevent you from, from changing the past in time travel stories. On the other hand, time travel stories explore exactly the opposite. Uh, just the way that the slightest change can cause massive changes in history the way that we know it. And, and time travel stories seem to go back and forth between those two ways of understanding. Um, interacting with the past. It's completely unchangeable. It's so fragile that a sneeze in the wrong place can, can cause the greatest changes. And, and these Western time travel narratives, I think, sort of pick up on that, and they sort of move back and forth between those two poles of ways of understanding the past. Um, it allows, I, I think it allows writers and creators to explore ways in which history is intractable, right? That, that is difficult to change history. Um, there, there are elements that are beyond human control or individual control, right? That these sort of larger forces. Um, but it also allows writers, I think, to explore history as something that's contingent, right? That is changeable. Um, that manifest destiny, for example, is not manifest or destined, mm -hmm. right? That there are other ways of reimagining the way this continent came into being or the, or the, the political and social formations that we might be in had different things happened at different times. What are some ways in which they're kind of bringing current day interests or topics or sensitivities or, or storylines and, um, and playing with them, uh, bringing them into the past in, in creative ways? Yeah, so, so maybe a good example of that would be um, Rebecca Roanhorse's novel, um, uh, part of her part of a series of novels, and this is the place where I, of course, forget the name that I oh the, so well. Yeah, the the uh, sixth world. Yeah, the sixth world series, but the first yeah. novel in Trail in of Lightning. Trail of Lightning. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's there's a film called um, there's a film that I like called um, shoot like something it also involves the word lightning in it and i keep getting the i keep getting the two titles confused and therefore i just blank on the title completely <laughs> so so trail of lightning right so so there so in and that's in oh, excuse me um sorry bad cat noise yeah. um so um in in, in trail of lightning what's happened is uh, is a climate change novel, so it's obviously picking up on on current concerns about climate change. In this version, 
um, because of uh, an event called the Great Water, everything has been reconfigured, right? Much of the United States is underwater in, in this world, which is sometime maybe mid 21st century. It's not exactly clear the exact date. Um, but because of that, it has sort of rearranged the world, uh, the geography, both socially and politically. Um, and in, um, in the story of the Navajo uh, homeland, uh, Deneta has been surrounded by a giant wall that has been built um, through a combination of engineering and um, the work of, um, of blessings and the, the work of um, this um, of the spirit beings, right? Uh, so it's sort of it's sort of a combination of spiritual and technological um, advancement, and so they're they're kind of protected from the rest of the world within within this uh, within this wall. Um, but it also then creates a, a a reimagined world in which these events, such as climate change, have made it possible for the Navajo Nation to truly become sovereign. Right? They, they really are their own uh, sovereign nation, protected by the walls, and no longer within the United States, which is no longer quite what it once was. But there's also monsters. Yeah, of course, <laughs> and tricksters, right? And coyote. Yeah. So, so yeah. So they're they're monsters that are actually drawn. Some of them are drawn from um, from Navajo legend, um, and and also other characters are drawn from Navajo legend, such as the the trickster coyote, um, who's a major sort of figure in the book. Um, but there are monsters, and um, the main character is a monster slayer, right? Uh, she's also a bounty hunter, except her bounty is monsters. So she protects people within the walls, within the walls uh, from, from the monsters that are there. And so what is this doing? How is this representing an indigenous? Um, I mean, it's pretty clear in some ways, but if, if this is an example of, you know, indigenous retellings or, or creative reimaginings of the world we live in, like, what, yeah, what, what does this, what does this uh, tell us? Yeah, well, I think as in a lot of sort of um, indigenous futurist narratives, the main thing it tells us is indigenous survival, right? It, it shows us the way that, it, it, you know, in, in some ways you can easily, I think, read the disaster here in, in the novel um, allegorically, right? As, as a disaster that's already been experienced by Native people, right? That there is an apocalypse of sort, there's an apocalyptic event. Um, and it seems to be a feature of indigenous futurist narratives that native people are well prepared for surviving this next apocalypse because they've already experienced one previously, right? So, so colonial incursion is sort of reimagined in terms of these um, speculative tropes, right? Whether it's zombies or climate change or, or whatever has caused the, the disaster. Um, and, um, do you think those it's intentional? Is do you think what these sense? are do you think these are intentional kind of um they're intentionally deploying like the, the trauma of colonialism uh and, and the lessons learned and indigenous survivance uh yeah in these kind of sci-fi settings. Yeah. So um there's a book called The Marrow of tradition? No, 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 no. The Marrow Thief, sorry. I'm getting my African-American and uh, Native American uh, mixed up. Um, and I can't remember the writer's name. Um, shoot, 
um, but it's the, the Mare of Thieves. And um, the idea here is that um, people have, the, the disaster is that people have lost the ability to dream, right? Um, except for natives who retain that ability. And what's happening in the story is that the non-natives are um, harvesting dreams from the natives. Um, and again, I, I think the the allegory is kind of on the nose, right? Yeah. That this sort of exploitation of resources uh, by these colonial uh, figures, right? Um, so I, I think it's definitely intentional. You talk uh, in a couple chapters, um, uh, you've kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, you look at the borderlands, kind of Southwest region specifically, but um, I'm reminded here of your discussions of uh, folklore, which we're seeing with some of the, you know, uh, some of the, the monsters in, uh, you know, the uh, the Sixth World series, you know, or kind of coming out of Navajo mythology. Um, what are some other ways in which in these kind of sci-fi, be it futuristic or set in the past ones, are these creators kind of playing with and, and blending, uh, you know, borderlands, southwest um, folklore mythology with you know, sci-fi and monsters and some of these other genres we're familiar with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that uh, creators are um, are are altering the Western, right? Are revising the Western is that they're combining it with other things, and one of the things that they're combining it with are these specific folklore and oral traditions, right? Um, you know, for for the African American Western, it's pretty common to have in the African-American Westerns a trickster figure, right? which is a, yeah, a real important element of African-American folklore is the trickster. And you, you, there are certainly tricksters in other Westerns, but it seems to be sort of a dominant trope in, in African-American Westerns that part of the way that you make a Western a Black Western is that you're importing these elements, right? Or or you're putting a jazz band in the desert as in Blazing Saddles, right? <laughs> you know, to, to sort of create that, that hybrid, the hybridity of bringing this other cultural text into this text that usually excludes that culture. Um, but with the, um, especially with the, uh, the books that I work with, um, Rudolfo Anaya's uh, Chupacabra series is, is kind of one of the things that I'm really interested in, in which the Chupacabra, which is a fairly recent mythological creature, um, is an important character in those books. There's a whole series of books in which the Chupacabra is the, the villain of the book that uh, the main characters are um, against, including um, uh, Chupacabra versus Billy the Kid, <laughs> in which you have Billy the Kid and Chupacabra in the same story and time travel, right? <laughs> Just, oh, man, a little of everything. Yeah, um, uh, which is, I think, is, is kind of what's fun about those books is the everythingness of it. Um, and the Chupacabra itself, which is a shapeshifter, is just this kind of like wonderful um, engine for genre mixing, right? Because he sometimes appears in, in cowboy clothes. He sometimes, he, he once appears as the Terminator, right? So it, it, a, a shapeshifting creature is, is a nice, is a nice sort of antagonist for um, a speculative hybrid work. Right, because he can be any of the genres that you want to bring into the story. So this makes me wonder: um, Are you familiar with the um, the novel, The Water Knife? I know of it. Right, I okay. had not read it, but I, I know a little bit about it. And I think I've mentioned it 
on this podcast before in some other contexts, but it takes place in this post-apocalyptic Southwest mega drought. Um, so again, it's kind of like this alternate, kind of a future alternate timeline um, in which all these Southwestern cities are sabotaging one another and fighting over water rights. Um, and there's, you know, intrigue and violence and all this stuff. Although there's been, over the last couple of years, there's been a number of headlines that make this book seem not so outlandish. Like multiple yeah. headlines, I'm like, this is a headline pulled straight out of this book. But my question being, so so there we have this kind of imagined future, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic future um, in which there, there are a lot of Western tropes and things being played with in that novel, but there is not, uh, you know, any sci-fi, horror, uh, time travel. There, there's none of these um, kind of speculative, unrealistic elements mm -hmm. um, that exist in um, in the books uh, and, and films and things you're talking about. So I'm interested to, about about the difference. What is, and maybe we've already talked about this plenty, but what is introducing these uh, unrealistic speculative elements allow a creator to do that, say, Bacha Galupi and the Water Knife uh, wasn't able to do? Well, so I think with the with the time travel in particular, I guess because you can get multiple perspectives, right, on, on events. Um, maybe in, in part because those events can change, right? Whereas in 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 the Water Knife, the events have happened. There's not like different versions of of of, uh, of what's happened in that novel. Um, whereas in the time travel narratives, you can explore the ways that things might have been different, made the ways things might have been better. Right, if certain tracks have been taken. The time travel narratives also, you talked about the Watchmen, uh, the HBO series. Um, well, that was based on um, you know, existing work, but uh as a way that they're able to then visit uh, a past that is quite different, but they're able to visit and view and interact with uh moments of actual actual historic moments of violence and trauma uh in 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 very realistic ways um which is seems somewhat paradoxical right using this unrealistic time travel you know thing as a way to actually actually go visit the past in in ways that we don't often see can you talk yeah, a little so bit about that yeah. so it's it's felt history it's experienced history and i i think the the influence for a lot of that is uh, Octavia Butler's Kindred, um, in which the main character, um, who's in the 1970s, an African-American woman, uh, but is drawn back in time into slavery. Um, and, and, you know, her sort of distance from the experiences of slavery in the 1970s um, is sort of challenged because she actually experiences it and feels it. Um, and the, the the kind of the, the traumatic I mean, it's one thing to read about and sort of intellectually understand history, understand the history of slavery, understand what happened to people who had been enslaved, uh, but to go back and experience it firsthand brings a new element to their character, that character's understanding of the past. So I, I think, I guess time travel may be in part as that, right? It, as, as a way of investigating history, but particularly traumatic history, it sort of, it, it not only 
allows you to understand what happened, um, but maybe it also brings you to be able to experience that part of history that is unrepresentable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of traumatic effect of, of these events from the past. Yeah, because we have no shortage of films or books that display the you know historic traumas and violence, you know, that show battles and massacres, um, but just set in the past. Right. But it's, it's something different if the storyline is someone from our present, someone with whom we identify in various ways, being plopped into the past and then having to watch it and react to this foreign world, uh, which the past is. Um, and, and we identify even more strongly because their experience is the same experience we're having as readers, right? Um, their experience their, their, their shock and horror yeah. at what's happening is what we would we, we because we're experiencing we for the first yeah. yeah we're experiencing it for the first time as well as they experience it yeah um I'm trying to think how to bring marty mcfly into this uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> you know well, I, so, so I haven't watched that of, i haven't watched that one in quite a while but i guess in terms of intentionality of of some of these texts the the way that they are um making us breaking it very clear that we are in a Western as well, not just sort of experiencing Western history, um, is is by all the jokes, right? So, and, and the jokes that we get in the audience. So when when Marty McFly arrives in the 19th century, he introduces himself as Clint Eastwood, right? Uh, making a very intentional call out to not Western history, but Western film. Yeah. Um, and he's dressed in like this, like, Gene Autry kind of and he goes back like thinking Autry. like oh I need to um, he's trying to fit in so he's going to dress western right uh -huh. and his his ideas of what the west uh, was he's bringing with him back and it doesn't quite match up it doesn't quite match up yes yes and, and, and that's the way it goes all the way throughout right it, it's sort of um and, and this, I think, is, is, is somewhat typical of a number of these time travel narratives that go back to the Old West, is that the characters from the present are kind of thrilled to be in a Western. And there's always a sort of a disjunction between what they're expecting to happen and then what actually happens. Because what they're expecting is probably often built off of the Western genre tropes that they say probably grew up watching on TV, this character, yeah. right? And yeah. and they're bringing all of our mythologized West back to the actual West and being confronted with the reality that, oh, maybe that mythology wasn't right. It wasn't. And sometimes they're, but they're, they usually have moments of being confronted with it. They often get to live out their Western dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of but that's both. different in these speculative ones, though, because they're going back and uh, and uh, and often things are you know radically different. They're not experiencing an actual historic West. But we, the right. reader or the viewer, are still getting to think critically or have to wrestle with, well, what assumptions or mythologies have I bought into um, and how do they resonate or not resonate, you know, with what I'm seeing on the screen? Yeah, even a very enjoyable film like Back to the Future 3 raises questions, right? I mean, it's a very entertaining film. It's meant to entertain, but it does ask questions about history and the way we think we know history, right, and the way we experience history. Well, this is kind of, you know, the, the final topic I wanted to, to get to, like, um, you know, for, for the for the general public, you know, your book is going to expose them to a, a, this a, a wild selection of books and films to go, you know, consume and play with very, very all very entertaining stuff, which is great. Um, and that does the same for us as for those of us who are scholars. Um, 
but uh, for scholars, like kind of my question is like, you know, why should we care? Like, so me as a historian of the American West, what will, how will I benefit, not, not just from reading your book, but from them going and engaging with the texts and films and TV shows that you're talking about? How, how could that inform my scholarship or help me to think critically in new ways? Well, I, I think, I, especially since uh, Western criticism has really been intensely focused on realist works and is really used sort of authenticity sometimes as even a model for what is Western, that there's, there's this idea that there is a true West or an authentic West. And I, I think these works that intentionally are not realist, <laughs> right, that including those works, say, in a syllabus or some of those works in a syllabus provides a different way of thinking about the West and the Western. And I think also because there are so many writers of color who are working in these speculative fields, it also opens up opportunities to explain the, ex expand the diversity of courses. My cat's coming to visit. <laughs> yeah. No, I love seeing animals playing around in the background. Um, I'm not kidding any mouths over the microphones, though, unfortunately. Ah. Um, <laughs> But so, but so these genres, um, are they easier sandboxes for um, writers or filmmakers of color to play in uh, because they can operate outside of the, the strictures, the, the, the restrictions of, of, of Western genre? I think so, right? And, like and like think... to try to find funding or find a producer or to try to get these things up and off the ground. Are, are these other genres more welcoming? Yeah, so I mean, so in some ways, there's a um, there's a film, there's a zombie film um, that came out a few years ago uh, by a Native American um, filmmaker, and of course, I'm going to lose the name here. It's a First Nations the one. It's up in Canada, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, no, that's, that's actually that's another one. Oh, that's <laughs> another one. Of, I'm thinking of the dead can't the dead can't dance is what I'm thinking of, but. You know, if, if you want to like, it's a low budget film filmed in Kansas, actually. And um, if you want to make a film about a group of three Native American men who are on a road trip, who are trying to work out their issues with one another, good luck finding the funding for that. You want to you want to have a zombie film um, that is fun and has all the zombie tropes, but also has three Native American men going on a road trip, working out their issues among themselves, you might have easier time getting the funding for the zombie film, right? So there is funding for these type of genre films that makes uh, possible to do other types of stories that you might not be able to do otherwise or find, find funding for. Um, like there's not many films where we have a Native female protagonist. Right. But, but we saw that recently in this new Predator Right, one, exactly. Right? right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so there, there are possibilities there. Um, but I, I also think that for, for whatever reason at the moment, the fields of science fiction and fantasy and horror seem to have opened up in ways for writers of color that they were not open even 20 years ago, right? That there is much more, I mean, it, it's still not like it's a it's not like it's a wide open field for writers of color, but this certainly is better. And certainly they are winning the awards, right? Um, if you look back at like the, the awards of science fiction and fantasy for the past uh, five to eight years, you're seeing writers of color winning those awards and you were not seeing that earlier, in earlier mm -hmm. periods. So I think there's opportunities in those fields for writers of color. If you want to then also make a commentary on a Western, 
it's probably it's probably better to go with it via a fantasy novel or a um, science fiction novel rather than a straightforward Western. You're probably going to have a better chance of getting publication, have a better chance of getting an audience and making book sales. Hmm. And, well, and for us, the consumer, for scholars or students, you know, I, I love showing my students, making them watch like a foreign Western, you know, like one of these old East German communist, you know, oh, right, right, Westerns right. or um, I'm, I'm always telling people to go watch. There's a South Korean one called The Good, The Bad, The Weird. <laughs> one of the most entertaining Westerns I've ever seen, but it's set in like 1920s Manchuria. But it, they're useful pedagogically because uh, we, if, if I ask students to like, well, look, what are all the Western tropes that you're seeing here? Or you could do this with the Mandalorian or something, right. same thing, right? Like, um, uh, can you identify them and how are they playing with them differently? And how can that be uh, constructive or productive for us in thinking, you know, creatively or in new ways about the West? It just forces us to look at something from a different angle and even in me and my very historical non-speculative work it it there may be a spark of uh you know uh you know, a revelation of something i hadn't thought about by looking at it in a different way yeah, you should you should check out um a television series called firebite uh, which is an australian series i think it's available via amc plus right okay. in the u.s um, but the the director and creator of that is Warwick Fortin, uh, who's a ab uh, Aboriginal filmmaker, um, who's done some actually straightforward Western films as well as this Firebite series, which is a vampire Western um, that's set in South Australia in uh, opal mining fields that have been pretty much uh, tapped out, and the opal mines actually make good places for vampires of course <laughs> right, of course they would. right yeah. perfect um easy access <laughs> to the to the uh, upper areas as well when, when night falls um but it's very much a uh, a vampire western and there are uh, references if you remember the film from the 1980s near dark right which was a vampire film set in texas hmm. Right, uh, where they, I remember them as traveling around in a Winnebago <laughs> with the windows blocked out. Uh -huh. um, but there are a lot of sort of references to, to that film, and it's very intentionally a Western. It also takes the idea that uh, vampires arrived in Australia with the first fleet of ships, and they were they were sent there intentionally uh, to feed on the native population. Um, and part of the horror of colonialism is is articulated very effectively through this metaphor of these vampires that are quite literally uh, feeding on um, the indigenous inhabitants of this place. Um, it's it's a, and I, I think what I like about it is the way that it takes history and presents history through a metaphor that articulates the horror of the actual history that happened, right? In, in ways that can be concealed by other narratives. Yeah. Um, but it's also fun. Um, and I, I think you're, I, I actually included it in my popular genres course this past semester. Uh, students really sort of enjoyed it. So if you're, if you're thinking about something to show your students, uh, take a look at that and see what you think. Yeah, I mean, I love this idea of how the most unrealistic might actually give us a clearer view of of reality or yeah. you know of actual actual history this is all like my i'm gonna have to my wife's not going to be thrilled about our to watch cue because it's about to get very strange i think because <laughs> we watch shows in the evenings and she'll have you to blame but um this is really this is really great
Um, we're, we're about out of time. Um, do you want to take a moment to tell us about anything that you're working on in the future or uh, should we, do we just have to wait and see? Well, I, I think I'm going to sort of continue along the path that I'm on. Um, in Speculative West, it really ended up being mostly um, oriented towards science fiction texts. So I, I, I'm sort of taking Firebite as my jumping off point for, for what might come next and doing texts that are more horror oriented and texts that are also maybe more international um, so that I can do something, something that is along similar to Speculative West, but is moving in some new directions. And I think that looking at international texts as well as my usual North American texts, um, but also me more specifically focused on horror, I think is where I'm headed. That sounds great. Ah, excellent. Uh, well, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Congrats on this book. Uh, thanks for writing it. Oh, thanks for talking with me. This has been a pleasure. All right. Take care, Michael. All right. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.